Luke 14. We're um, in the middle of a, a series called Discipleship 101. And really the idea of this series is, uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Followers of Jesus are called his disciples. Um, as they follow this teacher, this rabbi, as, this, um, as we follow Jesus, what does that look like? What does that mean? And so we've been trying to get to the basic reality of that over this month, to be able to have that clear understanding, that confirmation of what God is calling us to and what that looks like, not just in the beginning of that relationship, but in following him. So we've been, um, this is our third week within this. Before we get into this week, I'd just love to be able to pray uh, with all of you and just ask the Lord to speak to our hearts through his word, and then we'll jump into this. So let's pray together. God, we just thank you so much um, for your love. We thank you for your presence. Thank you that um, you are with us here at New Life Lincoln Park. We acknowledge, God, that your love and your presence and what you're doing in the world goes beyond us and is so much greater than us. And we thank you for the church family that we are part of across the city, across, across the country, across the globe, that we could be called your children, that you know the ins and outs of everything that we're going through and processing. God, we are grateful for your grace. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that spirit that you would be the one speaking, you would be the one moving, whether we're sitting here in this room, if we're sitting at home watching, wherever we're at, God, that you would just challenge us, that you would help us to see the reality of our lives and the reality of our lives in light of who you are and this life that you're calling us to, that you would give us a humble sense of honesty and openness to hear from you. God, I thank you that you want us to know who you are, and I pray that you would make that real to us this morning. Just thank you for everyone that's in this place, everyone that's listening. Encourage us now. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, I've told this story before a while ago, but uh, it's just too good. This is too good of a story not to repeat, and it goes along with what we're talking about today. So, if you've heard it before, just laugh in all the right spots. Um, but th there was, quite a few years ago, I was at a conference in California, and was at this big church and was helping out with this conference and I was working at it and I needed some coffee because that's how life works. And I went in uh, while a session was going on. I went into like where the concessions and like the food and everything was and I was at just ordered a coffee from the, the people back there. And the one woman, she had, you know, being kind and, you know, friendly, hey, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Chicago. And she said, oh, I'm from Chicago. Where at in Chicago are you from? And I said, oh, I'm I'm from Chicago. And she said, I know, I know, but, but where in Chicago are you from? And I said, I live in Chicago. I, I live in Chicago. And she's like, I know, sir, but where in Chicago? And I felt like, you know, who's on first? What's going on here right now? And I said, I, I swear, ma'am, I'm not messing with you. I'm not being disrespectful. I live in Chicago. And the people who were like around working with her were kind of looking at the two of us like, what is going on? And I'm thinking, what is going on? And I said, I'm from Chicago. And she said, and she's getting aggravated. I know, sir, but where in Chicago are you from? And I, I, I live in Chicago. And she said, well, sir, when you put your address on an envelope, what city do you put down? And I, and I was a little flabbergasted at that point. And I said, you do know people live in the city, right? Like, I, I live right by the lake. And she said, oh, you're in the city. And I went, yeah, that's what I've been saying this whole time. And she's like, oh, I'm from Schaumburg. 
And I said, you're not from Chicago. <laughs> she said, yes, I am. I'm like, no, you're not. You're from around Chicago. I'm from Chicago. She said, no, I'm from Chicago too. And I went, when you put your address on an envelope, ma'am, <laughs> what city do you put? And she went, okay, you got me. But the reality is, is that and if you're from the suburbs, of course, you don't want to try to explain it. So we're used to that. I'm from Chicago. But there's a reality. You live in Chicago or you don't live in Chicago. You're part of the city or you're not part of the city. You're paying these taxes. No, we won't go into that far. She was identifying herself as someone who is part of the city. But she wasn't part of the city. She lived near it. She maybe visited it numerous times. She maybe hung out with people from the city and even joined in at different events, came in for concerts or games or whatever that might be. She might have identified with her parents' memories of being in the city. Maybe they lived in the city at some point and they she knows their experiences. But regardless of any of those things, regardless of how passionate her answers were, regardless of any of it, she was not a resident of Chicago. In a way, this is what our Discipleship 101 series has been about, has been showing us. There are people who say that they believe in God. There are people who say that they are followers of Jesus, that they are, they're around godly things at times. They use phrases like, I've always believed. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm trying my hardest to be a good person. But as far as the kingdom of God goes, as far as being part of Jesus' kingdom, they may live close by it, but they're not residents of it. Followers are people who are residents of Jesus' kingdom, not just tourists of it. Disciples are those who have an allegiance with Jesus. They're not just in close proximity to him. Now, let, let's go back to my friend in this conversation and who wasn't a Chicagoan, even though that she thought she was. Let's say at some point she realizes that she doesn't want to live in the suburbs anymore and she wants to live in the city, that she was meant to live in the city. Because obviously that's the better direction to go. Uh, she knows that she must leave where she is and she has to move here. That type of decision is not something that just happens on a whim. It's not just an emotional, in-the-moment, thoughtless, like, hey, let's go into the city and live there now. No, that's a major decision. That's a commitment. That's a complete change of life. She's going to be leaving a life in an area and of everything that she knew, and she's going to be starting a new life in this place, in this area, in this city. She has to process all that that entails, and her life is going to be drastically different. There's all of this amazing things about living here, but there's also difficulty. The way of life is different. The way, completely different code and ethic. There's a different way of going about things. And at one point, she finally says it out loud. She's considered it. She's thought through it. She's considered all these things, and she says, okay, I'm moving. Let's do this. But this move is different. It's different because she doesn't bring any of her stuff. She doesn't pack anything up. She doesn't bring anything with her, any relationships, anything. She just comes in and she enters in new. 
She steps forward, she crosses the border into her new place, and her new life begins in the city. She is a Chicagoan now. Not because she left her stuff, not because she moved here, not because of anything she did. She became a Chicagoan because this place made her a Chicagoan. And that's the reality of what happens with Jesus and what he's offering us and what the good news is all about. Scripture explains what it's like living apart from him, not living in life with him. It says in Romans 3.23, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Scripture talks about what the life is like apart from him. We are lost. We're, we're fallen. We're in need. Apart from him, we, we can't figure life out on our own. We can do a lot. Things can be okay for a little while. But in the larger scheme of things and the reality of things, we keep messing it up. And in and of ourselves, we are selfish beings craving selfish, simple desires when God is offering us so much more. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And we don't realize how these things that we hold on to Rather than seeing the reality of what God is, how simple they are, and how disappointing they are, and how they don't actually give us what our heart is longing for. And he has made it possible, though, for us to have a new life, to have the life that our heart craves. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the summary of the gospel, the summary of the good news. It says, I, want, I delivered to you as it was first importance what I also received. Paul says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time. That is the good news, that Jesus lived, that he died on, on the cross in our place, our sin put on him so that his righteousness could be put on us, conquering sin, conquering death, raising to life on the third day. That is the good news. It says in Titus 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us, nothing that we did in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and a renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hopes of eternal life. That because of what Jesus has done, we can know forgiveness. Because of Jesus has done, we can know healing. Because of what Jesus has done, we can have a new identity, one with joy and hope and peace. One that nothing on this earth can give us. We repent, we move away from our old life, and we move toward him. It says in Romans 10, If we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I have to be able to acknowledge within the reality of my heart of who I am that I am turning away every away from anything and everything I could identify with in life, and I am identifying who I am with the reality of Jesus. I'm giving him the allegiance of my heart. I'm aligning who I am with who he is. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus, is I am saying nothing else is the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of my life. I'm not the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of my life. And if I believe that in my heart, and I can say that in truth, then I become a new person. Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is your, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's, that's why the idea of I'm trying to be a good person, or I'm better than this person, or my, my parents always believe this doesn't work because it's not about the things we can do or anybody can do. None of that cuts it. It's only in what Jesus can do. And he's done everything. We just have to trust him. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. When you put your trust in Jesus, you become a new creature, a new person, a new individual, one that is heirs of his promise. You are part of his kingdom. You have joy that goes beyond your circumstances, peace beyond your understanding, and hope beyond any difficulty or death. Only Jesus can offer us that. That is all the reality of the gospel. That is what it means. That, that is what it means and why it's possible for us to become followers of Jesus. Acknowledging our need for him, acknowledging everything that he's done, and committing who we are to him. True disciples are those who have moved in with God, acknowledging this reality, become, become residents in his kingdom as his children, not just around it or aware of it. And so I, I give all of that, I give this explanation of what it means to follow Jesus because it leads into the story that we want to look at today. And the passage we want to look at, Jesus walks us through what we need to consider in making that decision. Because just like if that person's going to move from the suburbs into the city, we're going to always use that as the mode of our example, going from somewhere else to here, never from here someplace else. So that's my subtle hint that you should stay in the city. Um, Jesus walks us through what we need to consider in making a decision to put our faith in him. The first thing that we're going to see emphasized is that disciples make Jesus their first and their everything. Jesus make Jesus, excuse me, disciples make Jesus their first and their everything. In Luke 14, we're going to start in verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is one of those things that Jesus says that, you know, there's a lot of things that Jesus says and we're like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's encouraging. And then Jesus says some things like this and it's like, "Uh, what did he just say? And so what is he talking about here? Well, Webster defines hate as intense hostility and aversion. 
intense hate and aversion, intense hostility and aversion. I have an intense hostility and aversion to cottage cheese. It's disgusting. I hate it. I don't care what you think. Enjoy your bowl of runny maggots. I cannot eat it. It's disgusting. I have an intense hostility and aversion to cottage cheese. I have an intense hostility and aversion to people who are healthy and young, who are crossing the street in front of my car, walking like this in front of other, uh, other foam. I have an intense hostility and aversion to green jerseyed football teams. I have an intense hostility and aversion to the band Oasis. They're horrible. I have an intend, intense aversion and hostility toward commercials coming back to streaming services. It's why I left cable. To, why is this happening? But an intense hostility and aversion to Jeanette, my wife, to my, to my kids. What is Jesus saying here? Anyone who comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus telling us to have an intense hostility and aversion? The idea of hate here isn't about detesting. It's about comparison. Jesus is not telling you to, have a, to detest any of these people in your life. Jesus isn't saying, okay, make two groups. I'm in one group, and everything else you know is in the other. And everything else in the other, you're supposed to have an intense hostility and detestation to. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, what's going on, is he's saying, anytime you have to make a choice between me and anything else or anyone else, you always choose me. I am first. I am what defines everything. His point is about math, not about violent emotions. Anything you put up against Jesus, you must realize and acknowledge that he is greater, that he is better, and that he is more important. Really, Jesus is saying this here, and Paul, in another part of the New Testament, is going to complement this. In Philippians 3, he's going to say this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. We use the, the way this is translated is rubbish, garbage, but I mean it could literally be the dung heap. Complete trash. And what's the idea he's telling them is that there are a lot of options available for what can be most important in your life, but there is only one thing that should be, and that's Jesus. And if I'm comparing the opportunity and the reality of knowing Jesus compared to anything else, anything else that goes up against Jesus is garbage because he is everything, because he is greater, because he is worthy. Because he is Jesus. Daryl Bach says, Being a follower requires that Jesus be given primary allegiance. The Lord wants to have priority in every area of your life. 
Knowing Jesus is better and more important than anything. It isn't that other things are bad. It's just that nothing ever gets better than Jesus. And the reality is, is that in following Jesus, in being one of his disciples, that influences how you interact with family and spouse and children and neighbor and friend and everything in a good way, in the best way, and even the reality yourself. To be a disciple then is to say yes to Jesus above anything and everything. For some people, putting your faith in Jesus could be an antagonistic decision toward your family. You, yet you take up your cross and you walk down that road. Well, man, if I trust Jesus, what is my family going to think? What are my friends going to think? What is my workplace going to think? And the reality is that for some of us, that becomes the point of consideration. If I'm contemplating this decision, if I'm thinking through this reality of following him, that's what it comes down to us as we think through, okay, it's Jesus or it's their opinion of me. It's Jesus or this thing that I've ever known. And we go with this rather than with realizing that with Jesus we gain everything. And you need to realize, you need to not reject Jesus because of what somebody on this earth is going to think about you. You need to not reject Jesus. You need to not say no to following him because somebody you know and love and is important to you wants nothing to do with him. Because the reality is, is what God does in your life and what Jesus does in your life is could be and can be a light to that person. And right now in this moment, they might be really antagonistic to you, but over time, the what's happening in your life might be the testimony that that person eventually will need to hear. Do not reject Jesus because you're afraid of somebody rejecting you. Because the reality is, is with Jesus, you gain everything. For most people in our context, I think the things that we should comparatively hate or think through can be a sense of security, how much financial stability we have, maybe a laissez-faire attitude, just let life take its course, maybe a leftover youthful angst of no one can tell me what to do, I'm my own person. And again, at others it can be a reality of peer pressure. What are others going to be? Think of me. I mean, I I used to do youth ministry for a long time, and now that I'm doing adult ministry, pastoral work, the thing I know and realize after doing this for a long time is that we are all eternal teenagers. It's the same issues. It's the same stuff. It's the same everything. It's just now you have to pay the bills instead of your parents. And so you think about those things, a sense of security, a laissez-faire attitude, just let life take its course. No one's telling me what to do. What will others think? Is your rejection of Jesus coming from a place of some unrealized immaturity? Is that preventing you from seeing all that he has for you and this life that he has for you? Because nothing compares to him. Jobs, money, houses, a certain bank account balance, a certain paycheck size, having a child, having a spouse, having a car, getting a title, being recognized, being known, being adored. None of them are bad things, but none of them compare to Jesus. Disciples move beyond acknowledging this 
and they make Jesus their first. And so you have to ask yourself, is Jesus first in your life? For some of you, I, I, this Jesus thing is new. I, I'm just here checking things out. Somebody brought me. I'm watching a line, whatever that might be. You have to see the reality of everything the world offers you and everything the culture offers you. It's all, a lot of it can be really good stuff. And it can give you temporary meaning and happiness. It isn't in and of itself bad. But the reality is, is that none of it compares to what Jesus is offering you. None of it is a, compares to everything he's giving you. And everything that you look to becomes a bad thing and it becomes horrible in the sense is that we're holding on to something, hoping it will give us eternal reward and eternal meaning and eternal hope and all of it's temporary and fleeting. And so see Jesus for who he is and what he's offering because nothing that you look to can compare to him. If you're in here and you say that you're a follower of Jesus, are you following Jesus? Because he should be first in your life. And in our world today, the reality of following Jesus gets commandeered by a lot of different things. Political groups, different uh, advocacy groups, the idea, a lot of different ideas in our world that people can put labels and stuff on, and they commandeer the reality of a relationship of Jesus and what the kingdom of God is. And we have to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus or am I following something else that has Jesus tacked onto it? For some of you, it's that kind of coming to grips with that. For some of us, it's the idea of, oh, yeah, I mean, I did this decision for Jesus a while ago, and yeah, that was really important, but I'm really busy right now with family and school and work and everything else. Jesus wants to be Lord of your life in the busyness, not just when you're not busy. And the reality is that all of those things that we would point to as excuses are the reasons we need him more than we need to put him off. And so is Jesus first in your life? Or is he first paused? Is he the one that we set aside because of something else rather than bringing him into everything else? Disciples make Jesus their first and their everything. Next part of this really quickly. Generally speaking, disciples know what they are getting into with Jesus. Generally speaking, disciples know what they're getting into with Jesus. Look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not set down first and deliberate, deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Generally speaking, disciples know what they are getting into with Jesus. According to uh, an article about project management by Tom Mockle, he says this, poor planning is project management mistake number one. Poor planning is project management mistake number one. He explains what he means by that. Before a project work begins, you must make sure that the work is properly understood and agreed to by the project sponsor and key stakeholders. You need to work with the sponsor and stakeholders to ensure that there is a common perception of what the project will deliver, what it will complete, what it will cost, 
who will do the work, how the work will be done, and what the benefits will be. The larger the project, the more important it is that this information be mapped out formally and explicitly. All projects should start with this type of upfront planning to prevent problems caused by differing viewpoints on the basic terms of the project. The more, and some of you, I can see you going like this because this is your job and you're like, yep. If it's not figured out on the front end, it's going to be a mess later. And the reality is, is that when you come into the idea of following Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus' stories are talking about. A common perception, an upfront planning, reflection, and evaluation. Jesus is saying, you need to know what you're getting into. And generally speaking, we will. Being a follower doesn't mean that we're going to know through the specific details of what we're going to experience. I have no idea if tragedy or amazing mountaintops are in my family's life in the next three, six months, six years. There's no way we know that kind of a thing. That's not what I'm talking about. What it means is that you've considered the decision you're making and the life you're getting into. What is Jesus calling me to? Jesus is calling me to be a life like him. I know that getting into it because he makes it clear. Jesus is calling me to deny everything else and come to him. Jesus is call, calling me to make him first and nothing else. He makes it really clear what he wants us to do. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you gifts that you can be a serve. You can serve others and come alongside others and build them up. And they're going to use their gifts to build you up. He makes it really clear that that's what life with him is going to be. I'm going to use you to be my ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to use you to let the world know what I'm like. He makes that really clear what following him is like. Generally speaking, we know what we're getting into when we're a follower of Jesus. Eugene Peterson says, following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It's not about just the first step. It's about the journey that we're taking with Jesus. And you have to be aware of what that journey entails. An old life that is put to death by Jesus. A new identity with a new ethic on how we go about life. Difficulty at times and even persecution at times because as faithful as we are to the Lord, some people aren't going to like that. Assurance and hope. This is what Jesus calls us to. Following Jesus will cost you your life. And that cost is not a payment and it's not a deposit. It is letting go of your own will and power. A repentance, a surrender of will so that you can put your faith in Jesus he is the one who saves, who makes you a new creation, a child of God. He is the one who gives life to you. You have to know what you're getting into as you go into it, which leads to the last thing. Followers of Jesus make a conscience decision to follow Jesus. He says in verse 33, Therefore, if any of you, any of you who does not denounce all things cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not say, I am first, and everything else comes after him, cannot be my disciple. Is there a time in your life when you have began following Jesus? Is there a time when you said, everything else is second, and he is first? Because the reality is, this is what we've been talking about. If you say you're a Christian, but there's not a point in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Because that's what Jesus says. 
You have to put your faith in him. You have to say, make him Lord of your life. And if that isn't how you describe things, then you're not a disciple. But you can be. You have to make him Lord of your life. You have to trust him. Not, I'm doing my best, I'm trying really hard, my parents always... No, I know what Jesus did for me on the cross. I don't understand all of it, maybe different things, but I, under, I know what he did. And I know because of that, I'm made right with God. And I know because of that, I have meaning and purpose and a new identity. Because of him, I'm a child of God. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. And I don't say that to be a jerk. I say that to be inviting. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to acknowledge that with your life. Let today be the day that you put your trust in him. August 21st, 1999. I know the day I said yes to Jeanette. Summer between my freshman and sophomore year in June. I don't know the date, but I know the approximate kind of area. It isn't about the date, but it's about a reality that something happened. Is there a reality in your life that something happened that changed who you are and defines you? And if not, let it be this day in September 2022 that you say, Jesus, I am following you. I'm saying no to everything else and saying yes to you, making you first in my life. Give me life. I want you to be Lord of my life, Jesus. Let today be the day that you become a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I pray for anyone that needs to ha have a relationship with you, that today would be the day that that begins. For those of us who are following you, let today be a day of getting back in sync, of refocusing. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. We're actually going to close today by uh, observing communion. And so uh, stay seated, and um, our uh, ushers are going to pass out the different elements. If this is the first time you've ever done, you got, and you all can start passing them out now. Um, if, you ever, if this is the first time you've ever done communion with us, they're going to pass out the bread. They're going to pass out the juice. Just hold on to it, and we'll take all that together in a moment. Um, in the bread tray, there should be a smaller dish that has gluten-free bread. So if you need that, we... Um, you're good. If you don't need that, take it from the outside. Um, we always take a moment to allow uh, just a time of quiet reflection before the Lord, right before we receive communion together. Uh, a time we've just fed off of the Word of God, and so what is He? How is He feeding us? What does He want us to know? What does He want us to hear? If you're in here today and you haven't put your trust in Him, if you haven't begun following Him, then communion isn't for you. Communion is for those who are following him to remember what he's done. You don't need to remember what he's done. You need to acknowledge what he's done. And so let this be a time that you contemplate and you consider the reality of what it means to follow him. Everything we've talked about. Let, let this moment be the moment that you put your trust in him. Um, again, we'll be quiet before the Lord while the elements are being passed out. And then in just a moment, we'll stand and we'll take communion together.
Would you stand with me? The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you acknowledging your death in our place, acknowledging your resurrection, conquering sin and death. We thank you, Lord, for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we can be brought back home to God. God, we for please forgive us for our being distracted, for our sense of apathy, for not living as you are truly first in our lives. I pray that you would refocus us. I pray you would help us to be more in sync with who you are and what you teach us to be, how you teach us to be. God, give us a burden for your word, a burden for community, a burden to share you with others. Help us to be the followers, the disciples that you've made us to be. We are grateful for this life that you've given us. We are grateful for the grace and the mercy and the love you bestow upon us. We thank you for the cross. We do this all in remembrance of you. Let's receive the elements together. grateful for your body. We're grateful for your blood. We're grateful for the cross and the empty tomb. We're grateful for this life we have from you. In your name, amen. If you want to pass the cups uh, to the aisle, we'll collect those and let's sing together this last song.